Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Rick O'Connell and Evie Carnahan from The Mummy. And joining us for the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Glad to have you on and glad to talk about a just it feels like this movie. a great Hollywood blockbuster. Like this is meant to be consumed as a popcorn flick. It's not trying to be more, and it's actually like checking all the boxes that you look for in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few nits to pick. We will get to that. But overall, this is like a satisfying movie. Just like I want a big Hollywood action movie. Uh, but like in the like the romantic action movie, not in terms of having romance, which it does. But like that, that sense of adventure. Yeah. There's know? yeah, there's a certain there's a certain like romantic as an adjective that doesn't have anything to do with like couples and relationships. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a romantic of. Like this is adventure and swashbuckling. Like there's something about romantic and swashbuckling. There's a synonymous, like a synonymous meaning in there. Right. I mean, it's such a weird term to try and use because there's also like the romantic eras of literature. And yeah, there's a lot. It's a tangled up uh, term. This this has some of it and and it definitely works. And Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz are great leads for exactly this kind of movie. Right. They, They do such a good job with this. Like just short of winking, but also they are winking at the camera. <laughs> like, like they're not really breaking the fourth wall, but they're being very self-aware in what, exactly what they're being asked to do and why it's entertaining to watch. And their like self-knowingness of what it is that they're doing. It, somehow it just lands perfectly. Mm-hmm. So the version of the mummy, I guess we should clarify because there's been lots of mummy films uh this is the 1999 film and it was written and directed by stephen summers based on an outline by summers lloyd fonville and kevin jar it starred brendan fraser as rick o'connell and rachel weiss as evelyn carnahan and it is a loose adaptation of the 1932 film of the same name the the, you know the classic universal monsters era uh movies when you get uh you know frankenstein and dracula and the mummy um I will just say it's it's a pretty loose adaptation of that, but it gets credited as an adaptation for it. And uh, I guess, do you remember when you first saw this film? It would have been like in your teenage movie going heyday, right? Um, Well, it's 1999. So um, no, I I would have been nine years old when it came out. I forget how much younger than me you are. (laughs) Yeah, it's it is several years. Um, (laughs) And so. There's almost the, I almost certainly did not see this in the theater mm. um, because I, I wasn't going by myself. And this is not like what five, I was taking five to, years on is your your teenage yeah. movie going heyday. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is not the best years of movies. I remember like going to see Transformers oh. by myself. I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so it wouldn't have been until we got the DVD at the mm-hmm. house. Um, right. And I think it got kind of heavily into the rotation. I'm trying to remember if that was like a summer or a year or, the, or like the year after there was a period of where when I was uh, going off to college and stuff. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you wouldn't know. Um, there was, there was a period where mom and dad were like big on in the summertime having like a rotation of movies 
I think on the weekends, particularly not every night. Uh, but yeah, you don't have to be here to watch. But this movie's on in the house this evening. Yeah, know? it's like yeah, like this is the movie, and it, and there was a rotation of who got to pick what and everything like that. Um, and I think this got kind of heavy into that rotation, and I would definitely pick it. Um, because at ten years old, like this is like the action adventure movie that you want, you know. So like I'm, I'm like kind of like the prime audience, but not the theater audience <laughs> for yeah. this movie. Um. And yeah, so it, it, it fit, you know, into exactly what I wanted out of movies at 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> and so I watched it a lot, you know, in, into being a teenager. And then I think it became like the traditional, at least for me. Um, I don't know if it was like committedly the the traditional uh, Halloween night movie. Like mm. someone's got to man the door and hand out candy and, and like have the mummy be on. Sure. I remember when we were when I was a kid. uh getting back from trick-or-treating and watching on i want to say it was tnt they would be having a like classic monster movies night where i could come back and see like back to back to back frankenstein dracula the mummy <laughs> and if i got back in time from trick-or-treating like whatever was on you know i jumped and, in I, and i've through. probably never watched those in my life yes uh, like, but, this is the mummy to me okay uh and this is a really good mummy film it, it's like uh, when we were talking about like that romantic hollywood blockbuster like it's the feeling of like uh indiana jones or romancing the stone I, or um more recently like uh what, what disney was trying to do with national treasure i think was capture this kind of and i think national feel. treasure kind of kind of failed mm -hmm. um but yeah i think about those kinds of movies a lot i think 90s was kind of the heyday for it or at least a lot of attempts that got pretty close to the mark when you say indiana jones like nothing really captures indiana jones right um as as much as there's been a lot of attempts mm -hmm. um but like i think of this i think i think of the 90s phantom you know in that same kind of energy i think of dragonheart in the 90s in that same oh, kind yeah. of yeah i think it kind of separate like, i mean romantic adventure just, yeah I mean, and they're like they're the, the medieval genres definitely pushes that one a little farther back for me. But I mean, this this is a period piece. Indiana Jones is a period, you know, it's yeah. Um, no. But yeah, I think there's like kind of a 90s like adventure theme. Um, Rocketeer gets oh, into yeah. that territory. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's something that like kind of like died off in the 90s. And it's like, what's the closest thing? I don't know. Maybe Jumanji like with the rock. Yeah, in the last five years has kind of gotten that same years. tone, but it but it it needs like a lot of layering like into the video game and the self awareness and everything mm -hmm. to get there. And I think one thing that has happened is like just with the the dominance of franchises like the Marvel films and Star Wars films, like it takes a lot of like the summer blockbuster. It sucks a lot of the air out of the room, mm -hmm. uh, and also. Um, you know, to a degree, like a, a movie like The Mummy or uh, National Treasure, like they're trying to be a family friendly action adventure. And even though all the Marvel films are PG 13, they they are claiming that market share in a lot of ways. And yeah, yeah. They're, like you said, they're sucking the air out of the room for that. And so it's like, you can't put out the mummy when there's Marvel movies. I mean, they tried again with the Tom Cruise mummy. Do you remember that they did that? Well, yeah, but, that, <laughs> but that's not even the same kind of mummy movie. Like it's not going to be the same kind of adventure. Well, they were trying to do, a, it was called the dark universe the, it was the shared, it was the shared universe the shared universe of universal monster movies and the mummy was the first one it was it the only one that got made did they get a wolfman no. um no they definitely didn't and it was after they had already failed to launch things with a dracula film several years earlier like dracula the untold story or something 
right? They yeah. had attempted to like, and so Mummy was off. like, their, so they did a that. new attempt to relaunch yeah, to launch a shared universe that was called Dark Universe. And I think they were going to actually like try to absorb the Invisible Man mm-hmm. horror movie into it because it wasn't oh. intended as it, but then it right. was popular. And so they're like, uh, maybe this is our new Dark Universe take. <laughs> And they had um, Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll in the Mummy mm-hmm. movie. And he, you know, they, they were planning his own. And so, like, they were trying to do Dr. Jekyll as the Nick Fury of the Dark Universe. I remember. What is that? Like four years ago? It's got to be. I I saw that it was available to, like, uh, stream, like, on a free sample for one of the. The, you the, know, the, the prem- Tom Cruise mummy? Yeah. On one of the premiere movie channels, you know, where you get, like, a free weekend. And so, so I hit it and recorded it on the DVR. I had it there for months. And then I ended up watching like in installments as his folding laundry. I cannot tell 2017, you. 2017. It was four years ago. I cannot tell you a thing about it. <laughs> like I remember Tom Cruise waking up. Like I think Tom Cruise died. Like he's the mummy in the end. Like he dies and comes back because of the powers of the and, mummy. And has and he has powers, I think. Yes. Uh like like yes, there's a mummy they're fighting an ancient mummy that they're fighting, but somehow he gets mummy powers, and so he's a he's a dead man walking like the mummy. And and Tom mm-hmm. Cruise is now the mummy, I think. Oh, I think I think so you're hard. right. Having not watched it and only like heard discussion of it in podcasts. But I think you're right. I mean, and one thing that's really interesting is I will say Brendan Fraser is perfect for the tone and the role that they wanted him to be in this movie. Like it is just mm-hmm. such a great performance for this film. Tom Cruise was not perfect for that version of the mummy. <laughs> whatever they were doing, whatever he was supposed to be. Like, I think he's a mercenary or whatever. Like, it just didn't work. Like, I didn't care about him. Everything about Brendan Fraser's performance in this version of the Mummy was better than Tom Cruise's performance in that Mummy. I, that that's mm-hmm. my hot take. That I'm, and, I mean, like gonna, very gonna different films there. and everything. So it's like it, it. That's not a knock on acting chops in general. Tom yeah. Cruise is an extremely successful actor. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and and like in, I mean, there's Brendan Fraser's career is very varied. Like, and he's willing to like do big swings of really broad comedies like Torch of the Junk jungle uh you know this kind of uh action hero role kind of a harrison ford-esque uh action hero and so he's willing to do a lot and he's kind of disappeared of late uh because of some personal tragedies he's every now and then like the internet decides we love brendan fraser and we want him to know it and everyone just like talks about how much they love brendan fraser and his roles and then we find out that you know he's had some rough times and it just makes everyone a little sad and they want him mm-hmm. to know that we still like him <laughs> even yeah. though he's, he's not nearly as prominent in hollywood or in acting as he was in the 90s um and uh i just really enjoyed this version the tone of everything about this film it just comes together very nicely uh there are some nitpicks that we'll get to in the discussion but first a little bit of trivia so the mummy was released in may 1999 and it would go on to make over 400 million dollars at the worldwide box office its popularity would lead to two sequels do you remember the names of the two sequels um mummy returns and dragon emperor i never Tomb saw of the dragon emperor. As, yeah as, not as much as much as i love like the first two movies i like seeing the third one just seems like it's no good like you talked about you know brendan fraser having his his um you know his downtime in acting and some of it's from from these movies like he he did a lot of heavy stunt work and kind of like destroyed his back. Mm-hmm. I think through, through the third movie. And so I'm like, I don't want to see him go through all that pain. Yeah. I've not seen the third one either. I know I saw the mummy returns and I know that's like, we've noted it a few times as like the launching point of the rocks acting career. And he's done well uh, mm-hmm. since then. And that I, I enjoy it did lead to the spinoff Scorpion King movie. Did you know the Scorpion King is a franchise? 
Yeah, there's like four of them. Yes, I had not no all idea. featuring the rock. No, only the first one. <laughs> uh, so, well, I mean, he appears as the Scorpion King in The Mummy Returns, and then he has a spinoff movie, The Scorpion King. But there have been four additional direct-to-video sequels, and also an announced reboot of the Scorpion King franchise with uh, Dwayne Johnson executive producing that that latest announced reboot. Um, I don't understand the direct-to-DVD market. <laughs> I just want to say, how does how are they making money? <laughs> I... so much money that they've made four scorpion king films so there's five scorpion king films besides his appearance in the trilogy of the mummy franchise um i think tnt used to need content to run at 2 a.m and and like there's so many streaming services and, and so many cable channels yes think people people need stuff to air but i, I was just blown away to discover that there are five scorpion king films yeah, I like I'm trying to think. I'm like, I know I saw that they were like advertised as being on TNT or maybe even like USA Network. I mean, when when basic cable had, you know, a couple hundred channels, like that's a lot of content that people need. And so they would probably buy sequels like that. Mm. Now, Andrew, you, you you reminded me that you there is a, you know, a good almost decade between us. And so you were uh, of Saturday morning cartoon viewing age when this came out. Did you ever watch the Mummy cartoon series? I watched some of it. Um, Ran for two seasons, aired on the WB network in the early 2000s. And it was very much a Saturday morning cartoon version of like these characters of. Yeah. Rick and Evie and their child. Right. Didn't they have a a son in the second one? Yeah. Um, And so it was like a couple years after the second movie, probably. Mm -hmm. And so like, I remember watching some of it. um, But I. It didn't probably have the prime slot in Saturday morning cartoons yeah which i I don't know what time is the prime slot 9 a.m well it's also Um, what network because because whichever network has the show you're looking for you end up on that channel both before and after usually like whichever for me in in the 90s like uh you know fox had x-men so i ended up Mm -hmm. watching you know a bunch of the shows that were around x-men even if i was really just on fox for (laughs) x-men yeah but that show was probably when i was like starting to wrap up my saturday morning cartoon Mm -hmm. stuff right uh, but I, I remember it being on like I remember the premiere um, and I remember like a little bit like I could probably. I don't know, I could like reassemble a couple things. They were on a blimp um, traveling. I think there was an episode where they met Babe Ruth. Oh, really? OK, um, so can, yeah, kind of Rick, getting Rick into o- some young Indiana Jones Chronicles type of. Yeah, like uh, like Rick O'Connell was friends with Babe Ruth or something, um, what, what but he went off adventuring and Babe Ruth uh, the 20s. Okay. All right. It is, uh, I guess, a little later than I realized then. Okay. I was like, I, it feels like it's earlier than that. It does feel like it's earlier than that, but but I know it's in the 20s. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I never saw that. I was just kind of fascinated. There was a two-season uh, cartoon and then also all those other film uh, releases. And um, I feel like if Universal really wanted to build a shared monster universe, they should have gone back to this version of The Mummy. <laughs> And I from this, I think I heard some. I think I heard someone say like they they missed out on the chance, like through the early two thousands, they could have done a shared monster universe where it was just Rick O'Connell and Evie coming up against the various monsters. Oh yeah, that, in that different scenarios. Uh huh. It's like, can you? Oh yeah. This you so picture the them with the Wolfman, the Mummy picture, again. It's now, uh, you know, Frankenstein's wandering around. Uh, you know, they're poking they get, around somewhere, and in, they get in roped Eastern into Europe. it somehow, yeah, and they get pulled in. Yeah. I like mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, before we move on to the summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If uh, you are not yet supporting us on Patreon, we would invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, Andrew, you uh, wrote the summary. So would you like to take us away into the world of the mummy yes and like we've talked about it like being that romantic action adventure thing like there's a lot in this where i'm like i don't need to go into like a lot of clear detail Mm -hmm. in the summary i can i can do some broad strokes and like you'll get where we're going that said like i enjoy the details that are in this movie (laughs) i think there's a lot of really fun details of what characters do or how they interact there's a lot of really funny lines yeah and and, uh, like you said a lot of it is in the interactions and trying to summarize like the give and take of a bit of dialogue that never really captures it (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but i think there's like a really good balance to like action adventure romance comedy there's scary moments and they're like supposed to be scary like there's like all the stuff that like people go to go to see these specific genres Mm -hmm. and they're all here (laughs) in this one movie in, in the right oh, doses. Let, let's save this for the, the discussion because I, I, I have a little okay. bit about that. <laughs> All right. In ancient Egypt, Pharaoh's high priest Imhotep and the Pharaoh's mistress Anaxinamun have an affair. Pharaoh catches them and they kill him. Uh, for this, Imhotep is punished with a cursed mummification and his sarcophagus is locked with a puzzle key box thing. It's going to come back later. In the 20s, we see a garrison of the French Foreign Legion near the burial site. They're attacked by a large group of horsemen. In narration, we learn that these are the Medjai, protectors of the burial site, who ensure that the mummy is undisturbed so that the curse doesn't awaken and cause chaos. Among the Legionnaires, we're introduced to Rick O'Connell, who is a 90s action hero, and Benny, who's a sniveling weasel and a coward. Just real quick, while we're... uh... We said this share some, uh, you know, tonal affinities with Indiana Jones. There's a, a lot of rate uh, of Last Crusade <laughs> overlap mm-hmm. with uh, with the way some uh, the, the Medjay get used in this. <laughs> yes, I, I also do want to point out a lot of extras on horseback with guns in this scene. Mm-hmm. Like it is a lot of people and it is not CGI. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing is like that when there's big crowds at this is the stage of filmmaking where you're like, oh, they really had big crowds of extras uh, that, yeah, that, like, that would be doing this. There's like hundreds of extras in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Benny runs away and Rick is chased into the ruins. The Medjai led by a man named Ardeth. I don't know how to actually pronounce his name. Um, they don't say it a lot in in the movie. But anyway, so the Medjai do not kill Rick, um, but he does see a creepy face in the sand. Probably related to the mummy. Oh, good, good late 90s special effects that I'm sure blew us away uh, at the time, but maybe don't hold up 20 years later. You don't think Sandface is is peak CGI? (laughs) It's peak late 90s CGI. (laughs) And to be fair, they don't really try to push it too far. Like they leave the the features vague enough to get away with it. Yeah. And that is a uh, a good choice. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, three years later, in Cairo, we're introduced to Evie and her brother, Jonathan. Evie is a librarian and a scholar. Jonathan is much less of a scholar and a thieving scoundrel, but the goofy kind, 
like not lovable, the Han Solo. lovable scoundrel. Yeah. yeah, not not a Han Solo kind, um, like a goofy scoundrel. Oh, I guess those are both versions of lovable scoundrels that, or at least we're told yes. they're lovable. Uh, but yeah, this was the co- comedy he, he, relief kind. Yeah, he's not rugged and handsome. He mm-hmm. is, um, he's the other kind. He's a bit of a fop and uh, getting in trouble. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan has acquired um, that key puzzle box thing and a map to the city of the dead where the mummy is buried and where there should also be tons of treasure. And they want to go find the city for treasure and archaeological reasons. There's uh, competing motivations for the same goal between these siblings. (laughs) Yes. She wants to go for archaeological reasons. He wants to go because it's supposed to be full of treasure. Um, Jonathan stole the key from Rick. So they go to find Rick and they, uh, and, and they want to have him take him to the city. He's in prison. So they negotiate to have him released. And the prison warder comes with them to find the city as part of the bargain. Uh, they, they get on a boat and they're traveling to the city. They meet a team of Americans who are also looking for the city of the dead. And they're being led there by Benny, the sniveling weasel. The boats attacked by Medjai, uh, cause they want to protect the city. And, now they all have to so the 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 boat burns down they have to travel by horse or camel when they get to the city the two parties set up separate camps they will not be collaborating they're not working together on this um the americans find the cursed book of the dead and several canoptic jars and rick and evie find emotep's tomb the warden uh, from the prison dies in the tunnels under the city that's you know to help establish some sense of stakes i guess right um and, and to give us, like, one dose of creepiness. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got to balance it out. Um, one night, Evie steals the Book of the Dead from the Americans, opens it with her key, and reads from it. This awakens Emotep, and now that he's awake, he will hunt down the Americans because they have the jars, uh, and he will drain them of their life force to restore his powers, which will allow him to rain down curses upon Egypt and potentially the world. Drain them of their life force and also steal parts of their bodies. I mean, like, it's kind of part, like, part and parcel. It's one it, and the same. It's a little vague. Like, we begin with one person turning around saying, he took my eyes and my tongue. Oh, well, yes. You kind of mumbling it. Uh, and now we see that, oh, the mummy has eyes and a tongue now. But then after that, it's kind of like, we're just sucking energy from you. And now I'm a little more solid. <laughs> see, yeah, like, just, it moves on just, pretty quickly. He just draws in their vitality. Yes. Um, ultimately, everyone runs away to Cairo. Uh, Imhotep follows them to Cairo, bringing curses with him. He efficiently kills the Americans and returns to full power. And he also collects all of the jars and the book of the dead. He's going to use the jars and the book of the dead to revive, uh, Anak Sunamun. So, uh, Arda, the, the Medjai shows up and he says, here's what's going to happen, right? He's probably going to try and revive his, his lost love, Anak Sunamun with the jars and the book of the dead, but he is going to need a living human host to sacrifice for this. And it seems like he's planning to use Evie to do this. Uh, so not a great situation to be in. No, no. ultimately, less, less they, but stakes yeah. have been established for us now. Yes. And, and Evie says like, okay, well let's figure out a way to re kill him. Um, but before they can, he kidnaps Evie and he heads back to the city of, of, of the dead for the ritual. And he's also bringing along Benny. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, Benny, the sniveling weasel, uh, sold out to Imhotep as soon as he possibly could. Oh, yeah. See, yeah. the loyalty is not one of uh, if we were to break down Benny's character, you know, like let's 10, 10 descriptors. <laughs> loyal, loyal would not be high on that list. <laughs> I, I Well, and they illustrate that really, really effectively when Imhotep's like approaching him initially. Benny like pulls out a cross necklace necklace and he he says a Catholic prayer and then he's like, no. OK. And he pulls out a whole bunch of 
religious necklaces and yeah. he starts going through them and like holding them up and offering a prayer until until he speaks Hebrew and and Imhotep says, "Oh, I recognize that one. You can yeah. be useful." Yes. Um Rick, Jonathan, and Ardeth uh follow and try to try to rescue Evie at the city and they also want to like complete the plan to rekill Imhotep. When they all get to the city, Imhotep sets up the ritual. Benny sets uh, a ton of treasure outside on some camels which I don't know why those camels are there because everyone was gone and nobody used camels to get to the city again. Right. Um, everyone flew there, but there's camels there now and it's fine. Um, Rick, Jonathan and Ardeth sneak into the ritual chamber to save the day. Um, there's a lot of really great action adventure stuff right here. Um, Gunfighting, sword fighting, Egyptian translations, part of the deal. It's an action sequence. It's kind of like when we don't really summarize the details of musical numbers. Yes. <laughs> A little punchy, punchy fight, fight. Well done. Yeah. Um, but everyone like gets their moments. The good guys win. Once the mummy is defeated, the city begins to sink into the desert and the good guys escape. And Benny gets his comeuppance by not making it out in time. And he's eaten by scarab beetles outside the city. The good guys find the camels and ride off into the sunset with treasure unknowingly in tow. The end. I will say the scarab beetles. Also, some CGI from the 90s that maybe hasn't aged as well, but still pretty creepy that, to see the scare beetles like crawling around under people's skin. Mm -hmm. Like some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. When there's a lot of scare beetles, it doesn't look great. When there's like one and it's crawling into the screen, it's like, OK, that's effective. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Um, just before we get into the praise, which I think there is an awful lot to praise, I will say watching this in 2021 i'm a little more aware than i would have been watching it in the in the late 90s of i think i know what you're gonna say the it, it's not that all your main characters are white it's the way that the characters of color get used as like faceless masses and just mm -hmm. instant uh you know sheep that have been taken over by impotep and that's their only role or uh, um or demonstrations of the the dangers right yes. they're the ones that die Mm -hmm. They're the red shirts, which uh, uh, I mean, I they're, mean the, the, granted, the Americans all die. I was about to say, yes, the American cowboys are also red shirts <laughs> in this. And they're treated as kind of like stereotypes of American cowboys, like like just the bravado. And and uh, it, it feels like they're one of them says yeehaw an awful lot. Yes, it feels like the, the, the movie is acknowledging like um, the, the the stereotyping is or at least trying to mitigate maybe the stereotyping of. Uh, you know, the Egyptians, uh, you know, the, the local people in Egypt, but with some broad stereotypes of Americans. And it does do that some, but I don't know that it's all handled great. <laughs> I, I think um, if they were making it today, they they would be much more sensitive to that and mm -hmm. and, and make some different choices. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to put that out there that, you know, if, if there is some to complain, but it's on... also very light on women. Oh, yes. Yeah. Evie is. Uh, well, Evie and the uh, what? what is the name of the mistress that's trying to be resurrected? Anak uh, uh, Sunamun. Are those the only two speaking roles for women? Um, I mean, and Anak Sunamun only speaks in uh, an attempt in that at prologue, ancient, right? Yeah, you know, ancient Egyptian during the, during the prologue. Yeah, um, and really, she is. Um, there's a little bit of male gaziness about her outfit in the uh, <laughs> in the opening. Mm -hmm. uh, but but Evie is a great character. I we will definitely be circling back to talk about Evie. But are those the only two women with speaking roles? Um, I think that there's maybe some lines in crowds and extras. Okay. So no other characters. Right. right. Yeah. So so, you know, that that's something that we'd see handled a little differently. Even like it feels weird to me to think of like the 90s as 20 years ago in like a different era of storytelling 
but it is. And I saw someone say like, um, it was the professor saying like my students today are writing about shows from the nineties or think about shows from the nineties, the way I thought about shows from the sixties <laughs> as like someone who was born in the eighties. And I'm like, Oh, that, that feels weird, but also I must acknowledge the truth of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, cause, cause to me like shows from the sixties were always like old and kind of like period pieces from a bygone era. And that is what, all my media from the nineties is now at. Um, and even though I, I want to think of everything from my, you know, college years on, it's about five years old. It's not. Um, and the mummy is actually something I do remember from college because we watched it in a film class, uh, when we were going through genres and it was the genre of Hollywood blockbuster. We took a week where we talked about Hollywood blockbuster and the teacher took a moment to, uh, I think it was Eric Sam- Samuelson took a moment to like run through, all the things that you look for in the classic Hollywood blockbuster. And this is what you were starting to do right before you started the summary of like, it's got all these elements to it. And he's like this movie, which at that when I was taking that class, it would have been like four years old. I think it was probably early two thousands that I was in that class. Um, He's like, this really is like, you can find every single one of these and it's not just action. It is uh, like, like a romance of like a, you know, a classic heterosexual pairing of like your two, your male and your female lead. Mm-hmm. It is um, uh, funny sidekicks. It is uh, animal antics. Like you need some funny animal beats within there, which uh, I'm like, that doesn't. There, and then I was there's like, a oh, couple of them. Oh, the, the camels. Like I remember sitting there. Yeah, and I was like, like two or three with the camels. Like I was thinking of like the, the monkey, you know, monkey bits that you often see where, where like the monkeys go. Indiana and Jones has that. Yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, the mummy doesn't have that. And I was like, oh, but it does have the camel stuff uh, happening. Uh, you need uh, moments of like real threat and terror uh, intermixed in, uh, but then also like levity that breaks the tension of those specific moments is part of the Hollywood blockbuster formula. And it's like the, you know, when the mummy screams at Rick and then Brendan Fraser screams right back and they just scoot out of the room like a Scooby-Doo, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, a little, a little scooting to the side. Uh, and I can't remember all the elements, but he's like, this is like a platonic ideal of the Hollywood blockbuster, um, you know, as it's come to be developed since the, you know, really since the, the seventies, you know, the, you know, the, um, yeah. What we've come to know as like the summer movie season. Now that has definitely had been to a degree like flattened because Marvel and, uh, you know, releases movies every, you know, any time of the year. And Disney started releasing star Wars films in, in, in winter, you know, right around Christmas and that, but when he's talking about, there in the like t- again 2003 or 2004 like there was a summer blockbuster film formula and the mummy is and, going to check every single box and it was usually and, and that big film was going to be released in may like that's the kickoff of summer mm-hmm. blockbuster season and there's something of it with that like i mean i don't know if anyone talks about this anymore like with streaming and everything but the four quadrant appeal mm-hmm. right like the the age and gender four quadrants was something they talked about a lot in the nineties and early two thousands. And I've heard people say that like the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie was like one of the last films to really hit that. And I think this kind of hits that territory, right? Like you take, you take young kids and they can enjoy this Mm -hmm. and you take adults and they can enjoy this. Yeah. And again, like I don't have that whole list memorized of what it was, but I've always since then thought of like the mummy as like, that version of the Hollywood blockbuster and like now comparing other, you know, uh, lighthearted action adventure romance films to the mummy. Uh, and there's a lot to like about this film. I think it's very competently done for what it's trying to do. And it's not trying to do more than what it's setting out to do. It is setting out to be that popcorn summer blockbuster. Man, lighthearted is the right word that that's like the thing that this has that most of the other stuff that's come out in like the last 
10 years mm-hmm. <laughs> is probably missing. Right. When we were talking about that list, it's like, yeah, maybe the Jumanji movie. Like that's got some of that lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. And that's um, why I think it, we start, we want to like start putting it into into this category because it's got that kind of self-aware humor. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think through like the superhero movies and like, like all the other movies. Marvel like, films. That are... Tom Cruise movie. There, there's no way that Tom Cruise movie has oh, lightheartedness. It was so dour. I just remember core. the color palette just um, felt dour. And maybe Marvel films. Maybe Man quippy. from Uncle has a little. Oh, I bet Man, Man from Uncle would be a good one. Man, need from, to go back and Man from Uncle's got a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Man from Uncle's got a little bit of that. So I think that would fit in. And I'm like thinking of like the Marvel movies and like maybe Guardians of the Galaxy. That has the... a little bit of that balance. But but that's like the only one. Yes, and like even the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy feels like a, a you know a intergalactic Indiana Jones moment. You know the yeah, like they're they they are doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, by, and the other Marvel films are lighter in tone than like the the more serious DC films of late. Um, not all DC films, mm-hmm. but you know the 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 Zack Snyder version of DC superheroes. It's more serious and somber. Uh, and Marvel films are quippy, but they're not lighthearted. You know, I think there's a difference, like where the lightheartedness kind of like pervades everything. And Marvel will break the tension with a joke. Uh, absolutely. Like Robert Downey Jr. was there to deliver jokes and, and break tension in a very similar way to what Rick O'Connell does in, in the mummy, but the overall tone, like there, there's more seriousness to the stakes of Marvel than I think you feel with the mummy, even though this has, you know, a sand creature, like taking out Cairo, like you never really feel a sense of weight to those stakes. I think. Yeah. And, and and like as nostalgic as we were being about about this and like identifying these other lighthearted movies, like you can kind of like watch the trend. And it's like they're not successful like they used to be. Right. It was it was a thing. And now it's not so much like people praise Jumanji a lot, but people didn't really praise Man from Uncle that much. And so you kind of got like a 50 50 hit rate, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. if you're going to go for that tone. So it's probably not a tone that Hollywood's going to attempt very often. Yeah, and I, I think it's one that uh, I, if we had like another really big hit, and it's really hard to like prognosticate about the box office right now because we're still you know in twenty twenty one and movies aren't yet a thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So movies are not back. <laughs> it's really hard to prognosticate, uh, but it feels like one or two films that really hit well, like The Mummy did in nineteen ninety nine. You'd see a wave of studios saying, "Can we can we capture some of that magic? Can we can we bottle that and redo it?" And it's like, mm-hmm. yes, look through the history of Hollywood, like this movie is doing it very well, but it's building off of, you know, an established formula that we have. And so you could put a spin on this, uh, and very successfully and, and find, uh, you know, some of the essence that the mummy is, is, um, doing in this film. Uh, I think you could put into other, uh, stories and franchises and I would think find an audience. I would hope mm-hmm. you would find an audience. I can't, I can't promise. I'm not a Hollywood exec that tries to, you know, see everything, but there's something I, I think very, and it's not just nostalgia. I think there's just something uh, enjoyable. Like it's just an enjoyable movie and it's not trying to like meditate uh, philosophically the way something like the matrix can be, you know, a, a, a really fun action movie in some parts, but it's also trying to like meditate philosophically about some, some big ideas. No, it's not trying to do that. It's like just saying, we're going to be a fun action movie, and that's what we're here for. And, but I also think, like, as you look at the characters and as as we're going to discuss them, like, that doesn't mean it it lacks mm-hmm. insight. Yeah. Right? Like, like depth isn't the only insight to offer, right? Like, shallow insight is still insight. <laughs> and it still reminds people, like, why we do things, what things are enjoyable in life, right? It's, we don't always have to, like, peer into our souls. Right. 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, Rick and Evie. Which one do you want to talk about first? I think they both warrant plenty of discussion. Yeah. Um, I I want to start with Evie. Okay. She has one of my favorite introductions. In the, in, in the library. Yes, in the library. And it is something that is so simultaneously improbable in terms of like realisticness but also so predictable in terms of I've seen lots of Looney Tune cartoons. Uh, and yet, yeah, like I, I see where this gag is going. I see where the gag is going. And yet somehow it just works where she, she knocks over a shelf and all of these massive bookshelves of old books, like domino. hundred pound bookshelves. Yes. And, and the, for whatever reason, the bookshelves are in a circle and it completes the whole <laughs> domino circling and they don't cut away from it. It is thunk 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 as it moves around somehow it works even though like i said like i I think we all as soon as one one shell started to go we knew exactly where this was gonna go and it's somehow like the gag did that where it's like okay if it's not right here it would be a groaner but now it's still going and it's kind of getting better as it keeps going the right number of bookshelves somehow (laughs) and i don't know know what that number is but it is like like do they do they uh like do a little small scale model okay what if we do 10 how does that sound yeah i don't know quite right 12 too too many okay what about eight well yeah like how did they figure out because they found it they found the right Mm -hmm. number and they built it and it actually is those that's one thing that really does stand out is like this physically is actually happening right in front of me Mm -hmm. uh and that's one thing i love about films from the 80s and 90s is there's still like both the how did they do it but also oh they really did that which now like i would assume like oh those shows were probably empty and they're they're cgi books you know they they could reset this in a in a minute and and you can you can feel the mass of paper on these shelves Mm -hmm. yeah and and i think there's uh uh both in terms of the sound that that we get and like the way the shelves interact with each other as as they hit like there's just uh, a realistic weight that seems to be coming that just makes it all feel better as the camera like circles around with the dominoes falling Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've got to say I think this is the first gag in the film, and it might be the first like joke in the film. Well, it had a very heavy prologue and a pretty long one that is all yeah, about it's, it's like multiple murders and torture and body horror, <laughs> right? And and then and then like and then a battle scene, right? Yes. With rifles and pistols. Uh-huh. So and yeah, there's swords. that long prologue, and then yes, the immediately into the fight, which did have. Uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, of the the gag of like one guy against 10. How is he going to get out of this? Uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a gag, but not like this is just a full on uh, physical gag is going to play out in this room. Yeah. And and uh, like it's kind of interesting that Evie introduces it like she lightens up the mood, but like she's like she's not the funny one, mm-hmm. you know, throughout throughout the movie. Like Rick makes more jokes throughout the movie. Right. He gets into more funny situations. And he says um, the quips, but, right? Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, but she gets introduced with this funny moment. And it's I think it's because like it's not that she did something funny. It's that something funny happened around her. Mm-hmm. And and she's like. And it's like demonstrating is like, OK, like, is she a klutz? Like, that's not exactly her character. But like she she made a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely. And, and like, that is that, part of her character. With, with her introduction, you might think she is going to be like the the constantly in danger not damsel in distress but constantly in danger like kind of klutzy character like the the intellectual that's out of their depth uh that is like always going to be uh maybe absentmindedly like almost walking off a ledge and you know rick's gonna pull her back you know that those kinds of gags that we've seen in dozens of other films and that's not mm-hmm. her character but this introduction makes you feel like that that could be where we're going so if it's not where we land how would we actually define her character do you think 
Um, well, so like they actually go through some work to define her character in the scene, right? Like, like the librarian, like the head librarian or the, the owner of the museum or head of the museum. And who comes is that in. actor? He's one of those. You're in he's, everything actors. He, yeah. He's a great character actor. Um, yeah. I, I, like he's in Stargate. I know he's in a lot of things and I love seeing him. I, I like that actor. Can yeah, you find I, his name? You you keep talking um, about what we learned about Evie, and I will look up yeah. the actor's name because uh, I'm sure he must have one of the the you know one of those massive IMDb lists of like mm-hmm. I've been working in four things you know every six months for my entire career. Yeah. Um. And so he comes in and and he's like, okay, like why do I tolerate you here? Like this is a huge mess. Like, and so she outlines, you know, like well, I I speak a and write read and write and speak ancient Egyptian, right? I'm one of the only people that can do that. I am, you know, a scholar. I know how to catalog these things. So she establishes like her credentials. Basically, she lays out all these things. It's like, okay, she um, is, is an academic archeologist. She hasn't done like any of the field work really, like, because you can tell that she's an indoor kid. And then you just quickly have it so clearly established, like she's done the work. She loves this stuff. She's passionate. Passion comes through a lot in that scene. Um, and then he says, like, but your parents were like the biggest patrons. It's like, OK, so her family had money <laughs> and they helped pay for the museum. She loves all this stuff. She's passionate about this stuff. She went to school for all this stuff and has done none of it. <laughs> yes, I, I like that. Uh, that description. So the actor real quick before we circle back to Evie, uh, it is Eric Avari. Uh, most recently, his uh, filmography is The Chosen, that TV series about the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. It is such a long filmography uh, that he has. If if you're trying to remember who this person is, just just Google Eric Avari and you're going to see his face and you're like, oh, I've seen him in, in a dozen things. <laughs> yeah. Um, and both I, like I think, TV and, and film like he's he's at home in both those worlds uh, entirely. Yeah, I, I mean. And I'm sure he gets cast as a character actor because of like his ethnic look, but I, I really like him as an actor. I don't like him as like, Oh, it's the, it's the guy I recognize from, you know, playing middle Eastern always. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, well, I like his performances. I like the energy that he brings to things. He's compelling as an actor. Yeah. I'm see, like, I'm just scrolling through. Like he goes back to like Star Trek, the next generation. He shows up in Star Trek, deep space nine. He's on Seinfeld. He's in Stargate, as you noted, uh, NYPD blue. He's got an episode of Babylon five. He's floating this, around. This is a 40 year career at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the, oh man, the mummy, the, uh, X files, <laughs> um, just a, a lot of, um, that kind of geek culture stuff as well. Um, Law and Order, of course. I mean, everyone is on Law and Order. I, I guess that one doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he also has a big uh, list. Yes, uh, but he he also like has a uh, gravitas where I'm, I would guess if I started to click around, he's very often doctor in a lot of these or professor. Mm-hmm. Like he's got a gravitas to him that uh, he feels like he's supposed to be in charge of whatever room our protagonist has walked into. <laughs> yes, he he has an authority figure um, vibe to him. Yeah. You know, like he, he commands respect and, and everything. OK, um, you uh, were, were noting that like we we do get a lot about Evie. And also in the next scene, when we meet her brother, we get a little bit more where he does like the jump scare uh, on her. And we realize that he is an awful person, uh, but lovably <laughs> awful uh, with no care for for artifacts or history or proper scholarship. But that's part and parcel of these kinds of films like, you know, 
we're talking about Indiana Jones and Rick O'Connell here, <laughs> like like mm-hmm. actual uh, <laughs> preserving of D- destruction uh, versus preservation of the sites. Yeah, yeah. There's different agendas uh, at play there. Um, but he does one of those lines that it did stand out to me. I'm like, oh, I love it when characters are meeting for the first time and one of them says, oh, sister of mine or oh, brother of <laughs> mine or you know something that is like immediately don't read any romantic tension into this. This is not an ex. We just want you These to know are siblings. these are siblings. Everyone It's like the first line out of his mouth is like, oh, kid sister. I love doing that to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so you establish like like her family is part of her identity to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. And um, well, and, and, yeah. and I think we start to get her defined in uh contrast to him like like yes, yes we're, we're told they're siblings but immediately we know he is the 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 drunk black sheep mm-hmm. <laughs> of and, the family that has no is, sense of responsibility and he has spent time outside um like getting into trouble mm-hmm. where she stayed inside and stayed out of trouble and so he has um a confidence that she lacks but she has so much um competency that he lacks Oh, I, that is a really good way to put it. <laughs> you know, like he can read some of the Egyptian because they went to school at uh-huh. the same places, but she actually like did it. Like his passion is not there. And and like, it's not clear that he has like a lot of passion. He's just kind of like zest for life passion. Yeah. Like what is my next adventure? Whatever it may be. And I'm not like committing to completing that adventure. I just, you know, I'm going to go until it stops interesting me. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's his life. Whereas she has um, like a, a purpose and a mission uh, th- that her, her, she has these life goals she's trying to achieve. And it seems yeah. like his life goal is what's the next fun thing that's in front of me. And I'm going to pursue that until I'm bored by it. Yeah. Um, and so I think he like he says that he was at a dig. So he goes out into the field and like assists excavations. Can you, and everything. Can you imagine him being an assistant to like uh, a stern <laughs> uh, archaeologist? I think, they, I think they bring him along because he he had like he went to school for it. And, and, well, and, 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 and I think there's probably there's, yeah. there's probably and there's probably sexism for why they're not bringing Evie, but they are bringing him. Right. And also like a hope for his family money, not his actual like skills. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so like they, I mean, sometimes having broad characters is a really good choice. It's the right choice in a yeah, lot of cases. And when we're really are like, we're not supposed to care about him. Like he's there to be broad comic relief and that is fine. And that actor is great in that role, uh, and really does nail that particular part. But I think it does, you know, saying that Evie ends up being defined in contrast to him. That's a valid way to like shorthand in a two minute scene who who mm-hmm. our female protagonist is. And I think it does accomplish that very well. Yeah. And then, I mean, later on, like to, to stay on the topic of Evie, like she starts to grow into herself, um, mm-hmm. like very quickly. I think like she starts negotiating with the warden for the release of Rick. And like, she's in charge of that. Like, I don't even know where Jonathan is. Um, yeah. And she's like, I'm going to negotiate. This is probably the first negotiation she's ever done. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think, um, She's the character in the film that has the growth and the arc, you know, that's different from beginning to end. Like Rick is just Rick. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, yes, he falls in love with Evie, but who he is at his core or like what we would expect him to be able to do at the beginning of the film is pretty much the same as at the end. Yeah, he just is caring about somebody like the relationship is his is his growth, mm-hmm. which uh, I I think that would be an improvement for his character <laughs> to to have. Yeah, uh, to have someone to care about. Yes. 
uh you know that that roguish devil may care attitude is um you know can be charming but he needs a little grounding and it's good that evie is going to give that to him but evie is like you said she's growing into this and never in a way that feels um you know like like it's not incompetence or even naivete that is what she's shedding as she grows it's just she's getting experience as she as she moves through yeah yeah, she she just needed to spend time doing these things. And now she's like, OK, I know how to do these things now. And she's one that like, I mean, there's a lot of crazy like supernatural stuff that happens and it never is like, um, you know, oh, this is going to break my mind. And the man has to slap me to bring me back to my senses, which I think we've dealt with in a couple, <laughs> fairly, you know, rec- mm-hmm. a couple times in recent episodes. It's never like a hint of that at all. It's like, oh, you know, it is ancient mysticism. I I know more about this than you all. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to figure on. out the solution. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and she, she has a clear sense. Like they are not going to be able to do this without me. And, and, and Rick is never diminishing of it. Right. Like there's never a sense that, um, any of our main characters like, well, she can't do it. She's a woman, right? There's mm-hmm. none of that. Right. Um, we get that from, from, uh, someone in one of the other parties and he gets eaten by the mummy. So yeah, that's a come up. It shows him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that red shirt. But, but <laughs> none of our, none of our heroes are diminishing, mm-hmm. um, of her contribution of, of her ability to participate or anything. Um, Rick is, I mean, Rick handles her in a way that he handles everybody who is smaller than him. <laughs> yes. And so it's, it's not even like truly like, very sexist in that kind of stuff like he throws her off the boat well he threw benny off the boat too like he throws people around yes uh and so there's kind of a he's not chivalrous (laughs) towards her but he's also not treating her any differently uh yeah than 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 anyone else Mm -hmm. um do you have any other stuff you wanted to talk about for evie i mean i i do um I think it's on the cusp of like playing into the, uh, you know, the hot librarian that doesn't know she's hot trope. (laughs) Right. You know, the, oh, oh, they never ever like shake her hair down. Yeah. But it's on the cusp of it. Like, but they don't actually go there. But like, if, I mean, her hair is up at the beginning. Is it down at the end? I'm trying to remember. Does she keep, um, it's not that different throughout. So I don't, I don't think it's a, do the glasses come and go? That's the other marker. (laughs) Um, I think the glasses pretty much just go. Right. Like before the end of the first act, like, like I said, like there's not a moment in the, in the library. Happens. Yeah. She's, she's got the glasses uh, and this is establishing like intellectual book. You I, th- know, I think she nerd. might have the glasses on the boat. Yeah. Um, but, but like pretty quickly it's like, okay, no glasses. And her hair is, you know, basically down like, and it's not that she's like loosening up. She's just like, okay, this is how, like, I don't have time mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah. these other things. And uh, there is, I mean, we're going to talk about Rick in a second, but I just want to say, like, as a couple, like, there's something that's, these two characters definitely work right together. They're not, uh, they're not samey savey. they're not so different, you know, that, but it just feels right that Rick found Evie, and, and well, and, I guess Evie found Rick in this instance, that, you know, it was the reverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, that they, they needed each other, uh, again, like him to get, some emotional grounding in his life and her to gain some of those experiences that she would have been competent for, but she was not going to get while she was studying books in the library. And I think their romance like evolves very naturally progressively and like simultaneously, Mm -hmm. like they, they draw each other's attention equally. And that's not something you see in like most movies and TV shows. It seems like things are so one-sided for so long. And then someone has a massive realization 
Right, yeah. Or anything. Like one it's has like, been the pursuer kind of like, and the other one the pursuee, yeah. and the pursuee hasn't like realized that he or she really likes the other one. This is uh pretty mutual uh like progression. They, like they kind of get charmed by each other and they can see like that they are growing closer mm-hmm. and everything, and they get to a point where it's like, okay, like we get it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like and we, Rachel Weiss's performance, uh, you know, really does sell every beat that she needs to sell uh, in, the, in the role of Evie. And um, I, I think one reason why it doesn't, like I said, it feels like it's on the cusp of that. And um, but one reason it never reaches there is I think Rachel Weiss is able to stay grounded enough in both, uh, like keeping that intellectual uh, side of the character that we meet initially uh, and then like growing into the more action uh side of things that that she has to do uh later on um but it still feels like the same character it's not like oh you know i suddenly discovered i'm this other person it's like no this is still who i am the whole way through Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that's a good way of uh describing it so rick uh rick oh is it o'connell i almost said i I was about to say an O net last name like wait which one is it it's (laughs) o'connell rick (laughs) o'connell Little flattery. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, how would we define this character? Um, well, so should we go to like his introduction, just like we did with with Evie's, and see what they established in that first scene? Yeah, this is the um, the, the very first fight scene, right? Yeah, so it's it's um, he's in the fr- French Foreign Legion, and so you're immediately okay. Somehow he ended up in the French Foreign Legion, and that comes with some baggage about a character. Can I just tell you something? Uh, my kids, for some reason. Well, I know why. It's because of a Peanuts cartoon. They've been reading old Peanuts. <laughs> they make jokes about joining the French Foreign Legion. And it catches me so off guard every single time. I'm like, how do you know? And, I, and then I remember it's because uh, Snoopy talks about joining the French Foreign Legion in one of the Snoopy comics that they've read. But they, they'll talk about Pokemon joining the French Foreign Legion and stuff like this. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so, so you certainly like there's an assumption of like some sort of rascality to him immediately, mm-hmm. right? Like just putting him in that uniform in Egypt. You're like, all right, this guy's a rascal. Yeah. A little bit of scoundrel, right? You know, yeah. it's, uh... um, and then he is pretty much immediately like in charge. So it's like, okay, but he has enough responsibility and like accountability and survivability that he has been promoted. And also like during this, this battle, which becomes a route for the French foreign legion, like they're, if mm-hmm. everyone else is cannon fodder that's around him we like use the word survivability but it's also like competency like he's he's the best oh, yeah. he's the best yeah, one there. like and and you can see like he's well equipped he he's carrying like six different guns mm-hmm. all the time um and 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 he's like running around he's bigger than the other guys and he's like he's got the the um i don't know like gumption chutzpah he's got like the the attitude and mentality and like mental fortitude to deal with this dire situation where everyone else is like getting scared and shaking. And he's like, I'm not going to shake. I'm going to deal with this situation. Yeah. And we see like someone, you know, runs away. Like there's cowardice, there's surrendering. There's just general incompetence all around him. And he is, you know, not in control of the situation, but he's in control (laughs) of himself. Yes. Oh, that's a really, that's a that's an excellent description because and I think, he's very rarely in control of the situation. Yeah. And, and I think uh, with some kinds of action heroes, you get the sense like 
they're they're 10 steps ahead they know exactly what's going to happen next he never knows what's going to happen next he doesn't expect anything that happens <laughs> to, to be what happens but he, he never like loses his wits he keeps his you know his his mind and his body like focused on whatever he needs to do and again that word survivability to survive the next five minutes mm-hmm. yeah and it and it, it does go into like that indiana jones like toughness where it's like okay like you can see that rick can lose a fight you know like he is not He's not Jason Bourne in these fights mm-hmm. where he's in complete control of the of the fight, but he can make it through the next obstacle. He can tough it out. He can take a couple extra punches and and not quit. Right. He's got that that fortitude to not quit. He's not going to give up trying. So he starts like running through the ruins and everything. So you see all of that like through his actions, really. Um, but but you're also seeing him like he is losing ground. He is retreating this whole time. Yeah, and and we end up with that, you know, gag bit of him with like one six shooter against a dozen people pointing yeah. guns at him. And then uh, there's a weird sound behind him. And uh, then then those people run away, which is a classic gag from these kinds of uh, movies. Um, and that's when we get like the suddenly the sand starts swirling and makes that makes that uh, CGI face in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, underneath but I, I also think like they like his beat when he thinks he's about to get shot, like he closes his eyes. He doesn't want to watch it happen. Yeah. And there's a couple moments of Brendan Fraser's like choices uh, that, that do stay with me. That's one of them that, that closing the eyes. The other is when they're on the boat and there's this, you know, the, the great action scene of, of all this fighting is happening. And he takes a moment and he's got Evie right next to him and he's ducked around a corner while people are shooting at him and he's loading his gun uh-huh. and you see the bullets like, uh, getting closer. progressively getting closer to him like someone shooting through the corner uh, of the wall and 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 then Evie grabs him and pulls him and a, a bullet hole appears right where he had been and he pauses and looks up and what do you make of that but you know the moment I'm talking about right like there's yeah, a very yeah. beat and it's not he, he doesn't turn and say thank you to her uh, and he doesn't try and act like I knew that was coming. That, I, I, I was going to be fine. Yeah, I, I was. I, he doesn't pretend like, oh, I, I had it. You didn't have to save me at all. But like, nor does he look. Okay, turn that was pretty close. And and like, you know, say like, you just saved my life. So how do you read that? beat? Because it's a pretty long beat in terms of editing that they give this um, reaction. I don't know. I like I think. And this is maybe a cop out answer. I, I think the beat is that Rick doesn't know what to do in that situation. Like he's not used to needing to be grateful. He's not used to being saved. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think there's a not, right answer. And he's not, I think it's, and he's it, not used to somebody that he would say thank you to, mm-hmm. right? Like he is used to Benny, yeah, who stabs him in the back. And I think he doesn't know how to say thank you. Thank you. I think that's definitely part of it. And I think it's interesting because I don't think there's a right answer where, like, I'm asking you to tell me exactly what I'm thinking because I think there's a lot of ways yeah. to read it. I think you can see in a moment, like his life passed before his eyes. He just realized, like, oh. That would have got that, me <laughs> like that, that was, one. That one. That one was real. That, that was the bullet that could have taken me out. <laughs> um, and I think there's that inability to say thank you. And there's also, I think, a realizing a realization that this situation is very out of control. Like this is a beat just before they're gonna I, be jumping into the river, right? I think. Oh man, I think, and and maybe this is just like how I'm going to read it from now on, but like. I'm like picturing that moment and we've seen in the previous scene, Evie like realizing that she cares about him, right? Mm -hmm. Like she's, she's being a little bit smitten and he has just so recently expressed like, I I don't really care about you. Right. Like he kissed her the first time they met, but he's like, "Ah, I was about to get hanged. 
Um, and he was very scoundrelly. And I think maybe this is like the moment where he's like, she just saved my life. Do I care about this person next to me uh-huh. in a way that I've, that he has not cared about the person next to him in a firefight ever before? You know, like, is it, is it, it did he just switch from like action adventure to protector? Yeah. I, I, I like that take on it. Um, and, and I, yeah, I'm kind of digging that one. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, that that like that's his realization of like this person cared about me. Mm-hmm. Do I care about this person? You know, and 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 then like he's like, well, even if I do have to care about this person, like I still have to like take care of this fight. <laughs> like yeah. my actions don't change, but my motivations maybe just did. No, I, I think that uh that that interpretation definitely works. And um yeah, I think one reason that the the moment has always stood with me is, is um, you know, the Brendan Fraser's acting there. I think there's a lot that happens in his face. And um, I, I, it's an instance where I don't think the ambiguity is a negative. It's just, you know, part part of that moment is there's a lot that could be taken from that. Mm-hmm. Well, and and because like he's kind of just like looking and thinking and about to step into action, like his hands are still moving on his guns. Uh huh. And and so he's like just still stepping into action. But I do like the idea that it's like, oh, it's it's him thinking through how his motivation just changed, right? His approach or attitude just shifted a little bit. Um, because I think that's kind of when in the movie it does shift, right? We see him starting to be a little bit different towards Evie um, in like the next few scenes. Because there's the scene where he steals excavation tools from one of the Americans mm-hmm. um, and gives it to her and he's stumbling over his words and everything and he's and he's awkward. Um, I think that's a great moment to show that yeah. like, okay, he is starting to care about her. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so anything else about his character that you think we should cover in terms of defining O'Connell, Rick O'Connell? Um, I think we, I think we've covered it, even though like, this is only like the first third of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you it, said, he doesn't change a ton, but that relationship changes something about him Mm -hmm. to some degree, but it doesn't change who he is or how he does things, right? Like he's still doing things gruffly and brusquely. Um, I think they really take advantage of like his size, like him being bigger than other people allows them to have him do things. He's not as big as the rock, obviously, but he's a big guy. And, and so they have him do things where he can pick people up or he can um, handle people. At one point he throws a chair at someone (laughs) You know, whereas like, okay, another character would throw something smaller. Yeah. But he just throws a whole chair. Yeah. No. And uh, I think. I wish we'd gotten more Brendan Fraser action hero uh, in this era, (laughs) because there's only so much you can you can put someone through in this, though, in the 90s when there's not a lot of like, I don't know how many stunt doubles are helping with this stuff, but I'm apparently sure not enough. Yeah, not enough because he does and, uh, hurt his back and not but, enough CGI assistance like most like. I don't know how much, if any, green screen right. is really going on in this movie. But, you know, the and, and, and this isn't to say that, like, modern movie stars are not going through the same degree of difficulty in in like the physical requirements and all that sort of stuff. But I think he was doing a lot of stuff that people would not be doing now. Yeah. Um, and I will just say, like, I remember it was right around this time. I know this movie is stupid and I have not rewatched it in years, but I remember laughing very hard when Brendan Fraser played George of the jungle <laughs> and I'm going to go. It's great. What? 
97. So yeah, right around the same time. And between mm-hmm. The Mummy and George of the Jungle, I, th- I thought like, oh, I, I think Brendan Fraser is one of my favorite actors uh, from that time. Uh, he hasn't done as much uh, recently, but I think I'd I think be... you, I think you really enjoyed him when he was on a couple episodes of Scrubs, too. Oh, he wait, around that right. same time. He was Those, great like in Scrubs uh, and, and uh, playing. Uh, a, uh, I will just say a, a different kind of role. And uh, yes, Scrubs is a sitcom, but he leans into the the pathos and uh, some of the depths of emotion uh, for that for that particular role. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a sitcom episode that that hits you in the feels uh, when, when he's on there. Um, so, yeah, he's. Like, I, I just remember really liking him. I think he's an actor that anytime there's a new project with him in it, I'm going to be intrigued and excited. Uh, and so I mm-hmm. hope we do still see more more Brendan Fraser products coming our way. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on The Mummy? Um, I mean, we talked a lot. And I still feel like I've got more to say, <laughs> you know, like we talked about like the characters. And so we talked about their introductions. We didn't talk about them much in the city or, you know, in the finale, mm-hmm. the kinds of things that they do. I really, really enjoyed this movie and I really enjoy the sequel. I think they're great. Um, yeah, and I it, think the 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 things that we say, like, I think they hold up, right? Like these are solid characters and they are interesting in and of themselves, right? I would I would watch Rick O'Connell or Evie, you know, in their own adventures, but I also really, really enjoy the the relationship that they form. It's like it's an additional character when they're in a relationship together. Yes. And um and I know this will not ever happen, but if this was set in the nineteen twenties and this came out in late nineties, that means they could bring these characters back, run it back and have them fight Nazis in a supernatural threat. <laughs> they could. <laughs> it will not happen. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, if this was 1999, then we are 20, 22 to 23 you years. You really want to lean into the uh, the shared affinities with with mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. And if we say, well, it might be a little too late because I think this is like the mid 20s. And so if we're going to go, this is like cleaning up after the Nazis. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's just say the late 40s. Some of those artifacts that Hitler was hunting in every uh, World War Two era sci fi film now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, they could do something with it. (laughs) Yeah. I'd I'd watch it if if they did, if they chose to do it. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. And also, Dueling Genre hosts a Discord channel, which my understanding is, you if you search for Dueling Genre on Discord, you'll be able to find... Uh, uh, that channel and uh, join it and there all the uh, podcast hosts from Dueling Genre are hanging out with uh, specific feeds dedicated to their particular podcast and you can chat with us there. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. See, I remember...
at a certain point, like getting back from trick or treating when I was a kid, like well before this, you know, how sorry I bumped it. 